Hello everyone and welcome to this very special occasion for mental health. Much today, January 30th, 2022, Mental Health Much is celebrating one year of doing queer podcast about mental health and I wanted to record a special episode just for this occasion. And for this episode, I decided to invite Jordan back. Back, back, back again. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> Jordan, I invited you back because we did a lot of episodes together, but there is one thing that we had been circling around for the entire time and we did not get to explore properly. Jordan, let us know why we are here today on this special occasion recording this surprise episode for the one-year anniversary of my podcast. Well, why are we doing a surprise for everybody? Well, because we could not get away without talking about this big elephant in the room that we've been talking about week after week after week. We needed to talk about the drug war, the war on drugs. The war on drugs. Yeah, it just kept coming back, right? We were <laughs> we were recording and we were like, oh, we should do an episode on the war on drugs. We kept like alluding to it. And then actually quite early on, We mm -hmm. decided to do this bonus episode. So it's a surprise for uh, people who are listening, but for you and me, <laughs> it really is not. We knew yeah. this was coming. We knew. <laughs> but surprise to everybody else. <laughs> Yay. Um, we love yeah. surprises on mental health much. So we're going to be talking about the drug war, but I think we, we're going to make it a little bit gay yes. and a little bit about mental health too. And Canadian. And Canadian. We're not here to talk about the United States of America. Yes. So it is going to be hard to talk about the war on drugs without talking about the USA, but we're mm. going to do our best. There might be like one or two little snippets in there just for interest sakes. So Jordan, you are in charge of today's episode. You are the leader of this episode. And you want me to start with that quote. I do. I love being in charge. It's such a, a feeling. <laughs> so here's the quote. There is no war on drug since one cannot make war on inanimate objects. There is a war on drug users who are often the most abused and traumatized people in society. In other words, our culture punishes people for having suffered and for using substances to ease their pain. From Gabor Mate. Gabor Mate is not somebody we can shout out to because neither one of us know him. So there is no shout out to Gabor Mate here today, but... He is a very famous author and doctor who's worked, I think, a lot in Vancouver's downtown east side, if I'm not mistaken. And he wrote a book called In the Realm of the Hungry Ghost, which is a really influential book on looking at addiction in a very different light and, and looking at it not as we sometimes often do as a disease or as a moral deficiency, but really shedding light on trauma's role in people's addictions and, and struggles with addictions. And he's been a big advocate for drug users and more ethical, humane treatment of people who use drugs for a long time now. I really love that quote. What does that quote say to you? How does that speak to you? Well, so I love the quote. I I agree on some part of it. I think there's more to it. So for people who don't know what the war on drug is, it stems from the idea that like drugs are causing problems. So if we eradicate the drug, there is no problem, which sound of like it's something that makes sense. But it's also just not something that works because there has always been drugs and there will always be drugs and there will always be people who use drugs. Mm -hmm. And so what the quote says is interesting because it is true. It's a war on the drug users. But I think like it's much more political 
than that. I think the war on drugs is serving like political purposes. I think it's serving a lot more than, I mean, it's a quote, right? So it, it mm-hmm. cannot like include all of my feelings. And that's fair. You don't have to like the quote. Um, I think you're right. In some ways, I love the, I love this quote. Um, but in other ways, I can see what you're saying, which is it doesn't speak to the, the war on drugs in its entirety, which is much more than just a war on people who are traumatized. They tend to be the casualties. I would say they're the casualties of the war on drugs, but they are not the reason the war on drugs has been declared. I think my problem with it is that it really paints people who use drugs as like victims who have mm. suffered from trauma and like poor people, like easing pain like i think it paints a weird portrait of people who use drugs and i think that's where my very complicated answer to your question came from i like your complicated answer and it's you're quite right on that it does paint a picture of drug users as being all people who've suffered through trauma and a lot of people use drugs casually and recreationally and they don't have that relationship with drugs Mm -hmm. so to say that all drug users are this or all drug users are that doesn't do anybody any favors it's almost stigmatizing in a way in a different way mm-hmm. than the current stigma around drug users. So, Because the reality of the war on drugs, too, is that it does not make war on people who appear to be using the drugs without problems. It only makes war towards uh, people who are distributing the drugs and people who seem to or who have like visibly an issue with drugs. Quite right. Quite right. And maybe like now is a good time to sort of segue into like a little bit of like the background of the war on drugs and like you talked about it being a government sort of taken up by the government. It's and it's just really it's a set of policies and and almost an attitude towards drug use and drug users that have been sort of officially sanctioned. And it's got its origins like a long, long time ago. We we talked about it previously in one of our podcast episodes. Yes. When we talked, I think, about the Canadian origins of like abstinence back in Vancouver when there was that riot and there was a whole bunch of angry white people that were angry but the the Asian immigrants taking their jobs, quote unquote, and the, the opium riots happened in Vancouver. Um, that's the origin of the Canadian sort of war on drugs. I know we said we were going to talk about the US, but this is a policy that was really associated with President Nixon at the time. When I was reading up on this episode, I was shocked at some of the U.S. background on the war on drugs and some of the outright lies that were told to the American public about the reasons for having a war on drugs. Yeah. (laughs) The U.S. is spending so much money on the war on drugs, not realizing that after decades and trillions of dollars, none of those things have worked. And instead of changing the way that they're doing things, they are just continuing to beat a dead horse. They really are. The U.S. stuff is, is really crazy, but also the origins as well. Like President Nixon had a problem with the hippies and with the riots that were happening around race at the time. And you couldn't make being a hippie illegal, and you couldn't like arrest people for being black, but you could declare a war on drugs, and both of those populations got associated with drugs. Mm-hmm. For example, like the hippies with pot, and, and at the time it was black people and heroin. And you could declare a war on those substances, and you could do just as good a job eradicating them as political like uh, rivals, and which Nixon saw them as. So, Jordan, you researched yeah. this. I'm curious, except from our geographical closeness to the U.S. Mm-hmm. How does the war on drugs started in Canada? We talked about the opium riots. It's sort of the origins of sort of prohibition and abstinence culture. And that's when we started to see laws put on the Canadian books against various substances. So in 1908, we had the Opium Act came into force. Uh, and then in 1911, that became the Opium and Narcotic Drug Act, and it added harsh penalties for people who use drugs, including imprisonment. Are you telling me that before 1908 in Canada, opium was not illegal? That is that is true. That is such not a long time. <laughs> no. All of these drugs, like cocaine was legally acceptable for a period of time. Opium, what else was another one that I, I read about? 
a lot of drugs that we could we consider legal now were very very easily accessible and in a lot of products that people bought over the counter right some of the laws around drugs came into effect because consumers were concerned about getting you know shady products that had like stuff they didn't know that was in them and people were being harmed that way like by taking drugs that they didn't know were in their so it was legal, but it was not like controlled in the way that alcohol is today. Absolutely. It wasn't a regulated substance at all. Okay. So, I mean, and then we think about the 1920s. That's when prohibition was big in terms of alcohol prohibition, at least in the States. I don't think in Canada we, I can't remember when we had prohibition in Canada, but there was a big temperance movement at that time to like eradicate alcohol. And then you see a lot of the things that we're seeing today with the drug poisoning crisis around fentanyl, you would see back in the day, alcohol was being made and people were dying and getting quite ill from like alcohol yeah when you make a substance illegal you and you don't allow it to be regulated a lot of harm can come of that so we've been here before yeah that's a thing that like that's the first thing for me personally i want people to understand about the war on drug is that you cannot cut the demand for drugs or alcohol their demands is kind of like always going to be there mm -hmm. and one thing that was interesting that i heard is that like the drug market is not price sensitive in a way that other product would be. So if tomorrow all of the cheese, for example, would like skyrocket because there would be no supply and all the cheese would like become like 20 times more expensive, I think a lot of people would just stop eating cheese and that would be that. But in drugs, like we've seen on with alcohol, the demand sort of like does not necessarily stop and it just makes it more dangerous and people need to make more sacrifices to take it. So because the demand never stops, even trying to cut the supply does not work. If there's a demand, supply mm -hmm. is going to find a way. I mean, I'm pretty sure if tomorrow, like the price of cheese would like becomes 10 times or 20 times bigger, we would find a black market for cheese. Black market cheese. I don't <laughs> know if I really want to buy black market cheese from somebody on the street corner. Like, hey, you got any camembert? Let's make it relatable for folks. In Toronto last summer, at the beginning of the pandemic, prices for crystal meth increased exponentially. We went from paying fairly reasonable rates to like doubled, tripled in cost overnight. And people still found a way to, to pay for it. It was, uh, dealers were busier than ever. People were making sacrifices to adjust for the higher prices, right? So there was no, no downturn in demand. Mm -hmm. And it just made it less safe. Very much so. People were taking bigger risks to get it. If dealers needed to acquire more funds to get their supply, so that meant they were working harder and longer and putting more risk and taking uh, riskier deals in order to keep their supply going. And it was it was a dangerous time too because there was more surveillance on the street from the cops because of COVID. It was it was a pretty scary time for a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting you brought up the price sensitivity. I mean, random factoid. The annual revenue generated by the illegal drug industry is estimated at U.S. $400 billion per year. And it's about 8% of international trade. Okay, can you explain all of that to me? Because you just said a bunch of numbers that uh, went over my head. Okay, so um, the total revenues generated by the illegal drug trade, so all the sales of illegal drugs across the globe, reaches the yearly equivalent of about U.S. $400 billion worth of revenue. So it makes about $400 billion worth of revenue. And that's roughly equivalent of 8% of our total international trade revenue, right? So all of the trade across the world for every good and service that there is possible, drugs make up about 8% of that. Okay. Does that make sense? Or no? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not an economist. I'm just quoting a number here. So all the trades in the world, if we combine all of that money, 8% of that money is the amount of money that was spent 
into trade of drugs. That's correct. So drugs are there and they're there to stay. That's kind of what we've been saying. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now, right now, that money is being made by drug cartels and, and drug dealers and a lot of people who are not necessarily like great folks. Mm -hmm. They're making money, of course. I don't want to make a moral judgment about people, but a lot of the cartels are implicated in violence and oppression in a lot of their home countries, and they're not necessarily forces of good. Yeah. Right? So I, I heard something doing a bit of research for this episode, and it actually made a lot of sense. Because alcohol is a regulated and legal substance, If you and me go today to the LCBO and steal a bottle of vodka, the owner of the LCBO can call the cops and then they can use the law in order for us to be arrested. But if you and me want some cocaine and we go somewhere and we steal cocaine, the person that we steal from cannot call the cops because they're going to be arrested as well. So the only way that they have to protect their drugs from people stealing it is through violence and intimidation. Exactly. It's quite interesting for me to think that like stealing something illegal is illegal, like on every sense. It's kind of like this weird catch 22 where you're protected, except if what you're doing is illegal and then the law is not on your side. Well, yeah. And it's, it's one of those ways that the laws around drugs and the way that we talk about drugs and, and all of that creates harm, right? So mm -hmm. if you could report your stolen drugs to the police and have that person dealt with the way we would ordinary theft, right? There might not necessarily be like violent retribution or violent repercussions for those people involved. A lot of the harms that come out of drug use can be the result of the fact that it's illegal. Mm -hmm. That's another way that the laws around our drugs cause harm to people who use drugs. We can make a parallel between sex work. If a sex worker is ripped off by their john or their client, They can't report that to the Better Business Bureau and get their money back from that client. They're, they're kind of shit out of luck. And the same thing here with drug dealers. Mm -hmm. I know we were talking about the history, but we're like 15 minutes in now. And I don't know how clear we've been with the fact that the war on drug does not work. And you were just talking about sex work. Sex work is another place where making sex work illegal does not remove the demand for sex workers. It only makes it more dangerous for people who practice sex work. It's the same with abortion, abortion rights. Like making abortion illegal has never stopped people from getting abortion. It just made it dangerous for people with uterus to get an abortion. Mm -hmm. And let's think closer to home, gay sex. Gay sex was illegal, never stopped anyone from having gay sex, but it made it a lot more dangerous for people to have gay sex because they had to hide. They could not talk about it. They had to live this double life, but it never stopped anyone from having gay sex if they wanted to. So it's the same with war on drugs. It just doesn't work. I know that in principle, it seems like it's a good idea, but we need to like let go of that. Why do you think it is that, that people still feel like the war on drugs is a good idea, though? Like, what does it appeal to in people that makes us support this sort of tough on crime, war on drugs kind of approach? Um, I think people are afraid of decriminalizing all of these things because they're afraid. I think it's a common, like, human fear that if we make things available and legal, people will abuse those things. Like the discourse behind like gay sex uh, being prohibited behind like abortion being illegal is that like, oh, or now like everybody's going to have sex with everyone, including kids or like, oh, now like women are going to have an abortion. Like 
every two months instead of using contraception properly. I, I think it's like this fake fear that if something is available, people are going to not be able to control themselves mm. somehow mm. and just sort of like abuse that thing over and over again. What is your sense on that? Because I don't know that my answer is the absolute truth. No, I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. I think it's, I think it's a lot of fear-mongering. There's a lot of other sort of things that get tied in with why certain drugs are, are we're scared of certain drugs and not others. Because if you look at it from the plain physical and, and actual harm that comes of drugs, the two biggest culprits in our society are alcohol and tobacco. And those are both legal drugs that the government makes money off of. Mm-hmm. But yet we, we're more scared of crystal meth. We're more scared of heroin. We're more, we're, rightly, we're scared of fentanyl right now because there's a poison drug supply. But these drugs are no more harmful than alcohol and tobacco are if you look at it in terms of actual harms caused. And in fact, because so few people use some of these drugs, the harms are far less in terms of a societal impact because there's less people using them. Mm-hmm. But they're tied up with things around race, around poverty. The people who use the drugs are the things that we're, I would say we're more afraid of than actually the drugs themselves, right? We're afraid of the crime that's associated with drug use, not looking at the ways that our own laws create and facilitate that crime. The war on drugs has resulted in over-policed neighborhoods and all sorts of horrible, horrible outcomes for a lot of people of color and indigenous folks. It plays into sort of those more sort of basic fears that we have that are often racially motivated or a fear of the other. Yeah. And, and governments have done a really good job at stoking those fears for political ga- aims. And we also have an entire law enforcement strategy that's like really benefits from the war on drugs because it keeps them gainfully employed, right? And policing our streets to prevent people from using drugs. But will someone think of the kids, Jordan? Oh my God. Won't somebody please think of the children? That Simpsons quote is my favorite quote of all time because it's really like... You would imagine that there are drug dealers just waiting to go out into the playground and sell like drugs to kids. And I can say for the most part, I don't think that happens as much as we think it happens. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I we should have a war against someone who does that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you're that one dealer, we're coming after you. <laughs> so, fun fact, you were talking about alcohol and mm-hmm. tobacco. I don't know the percentages, and I'm not sure how much of an impact this has on the war on drugs. This is from the U.S. as well. But Mm -hmm. I learned today that some of the groups who are funding the war on drugs and giving like money to political parties to continue that war on drugs are actually alcohol companies. Because if more drugs are legal, maybe less people are going to use alcohol. And that's fascinating to me i'm not sure what the impact is and i haven't like deep dive researched this because i was busy today and we're recording but to think that alcohol companies are financing part of the war on drugs is really interesting what else too private prisons Mm. in the u.s are financing the war on drugs i'm not sure how much private prisons make money and how much money they can actually contribute to the war on drugs. Mm. And again, that's in the U S but that's fascinating. (laughs) Oh my God. I'm trying to imagine like some Labatt's executive being like, well, if if people can use crystal meth, they're not going to want to drink Labatt's beer. Like I can't think of that correlation. (laughs) It's just really amusing to me, but also kind of scary. I mean, that's the thing when you've got companies that have a vested interest in, in maintaining a market share or having a population be incarcerated so like in the private prison system like that's their market they need people in prison mm-hmm. and because there's mandatory minimums in the states around a lot of drug charges and the zero tolerance policy or the three strikes rule you know those are people that are going to be in there for a long time making them money 
they've a vested interest. It's, it's scary how capitalism and politics and the criminal law all seem to intersect in this like melting pot that's not, not good for people. Mm-hmm. I want to re-ether that like even the expert that I heard talk about this was saying like that he was not sure how much impact that these investments had uh, and these were like speculation I mean, it's true that they finance that, but it's like the goal behind it, like it's speculation. But I still, I still find it interesting. It is fascinating. I have a subscription to a magazine called Jacobin, and this uh, month's issue was on the prison system in the U.S. And it talks actually a lot about the war on drugs and and a couple of big sort of scandals in U.S. politics and political history, where U.S. The U.S. government did business with known drug dealers in order to achieve foreign policy aims, which was fascinating to me. The Iran-Contra scandal actually had links to the drug trade. And American politicians knowingly went to bed with people who were dealing drugs and made it easier for them to get drugs into the United States by siding with them in this, this particular political foreign policy boondoggle. Don't ask me anything more on that because I'm not an expert on U.S. foreign policy. So now that I've got it off my chest that this doesn't work, I want to go back to the Canadian history because I very much interrupted you. You did. (laughs) And I love you for it because I think it was an interesting segue to take. So we should take a look at the Canadian history, but we also need to understand Canada's approach to the war on drugs, which just shifted over the years. I think we left off, um, I was about to talk about 1961. Uh, which is when we introduced the Narcotics Control Act, and it continued to focus on criminalizing drug use, even though at the time there was a real shift in thinking between drug use and public health. So previously, it had been we'd been criminalizing drug users. There was this sort of psychiatric idea that drug users were all degenerates, they're all morally deficient, they're all mentally deficient, there's something criminal about them. We started to move into this time when people started to explore drug use as a public health concern, not as a criminal concern. Yet we were still interested in Canada at criminalizing the issue. Tell us more about that. So it was criminal and then it became a public health issue. But I feel like the criminality stayed there. Am I right? No, you're right. I think what I I should distinguish between is that what was happening in society in terms of attitudes towards drugs and what was actually happening in terms of like the legal and and framework around drugs were two different things. Anybody who knows anything about the 60s or 70s knows those were a time of like great drug permissiveness. There was a lot of people using drugs in popular culture. It was becoming more permissible. But Often what was happening was there was a reaction on the other side of things from government, from politics, to control and continue to criminalize the issue because the freedom around drugs were seen as sort of like countercultural. They were seen as like maybe going against the needs of the, the government or the state. So there were these two things happening in society at the same time. Okay. More permissiveness and more research was going into drug use as a public health issue and people were changing their ideas in the scientific community and the medical community. But that wasn't being reflected in our policies because drugs were still a political sort of hot potato. They represented anti-government sentiment in the 60s, right? We think about the hippies. Right. And in the 70s, there was more drug permissiveness, but they were seen as countercultural. So the government was clamping down or just reinforcing or outright ignoring scientific evidence, which we did in Canada. So in the the early, like in 1920s, it sort of like became illegal. And in the 60s, we saw at least from the public from society, like a movement of anti-government and hippies being like, we're still using drugs. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And then what happened from these, because <laughs> it was the boomers, right? In the mm-hmm. in the 60s who were using drugs. What happened for them to like go like 180? <laughs> Damn boomers. I think what was happening as well was that there was an increase in crime in the 1970s and 60s. So there was an increase in crime. And so people got nervous about crime 
is really easy to tie crime into to, to drugs and also into like other groups of people that we criminalize in our society. And in the 80s and 90s, that sort of cry was taken up again. There was more crime happening. There was a crime spree. Crime was everywhere. Culturally speaking, there was just a shift. And I think a lot of policies played into sort of the fears and anxieties of people around their children and around harm coming to them and around crime and, and you know, theft and violence and made people scared. Um, and it was easy because in the 1980s, there was such a, there was a belief at one point that the drug use was the biggest concern in society. Like in, I think, 1989 or 80, 88, one of the facts I had was like 60-something plus percent of the American population thought drugs were the number one problem facing the nation. And it was totally disproportionate to what was actually happening in terms of drug harm. And this is around the time that Ronald Reagan was busy saying, just say no and re-declaring the war on drugs and, and giving more powers to the police. And same thing in Canada. We were still like, we were almost in lockstep with the U.S. in a lot of ways. Right. We mirrored a lot of that for a long time. So Jordan, both you and I are white. I don't want us to talk about something that we don't necessarily know about, but I'm curious because if we look at other things that were happening in history at the time in the U.S., there was a lot of like the end of the segregation and like it was a big wave of like black people liberation. Do you think that has an impact? What you're saying about race and the interaction with the war on drugs is very telling. I wouldn't be able to speak to it either on an expert basis, but I would say that like look at the statistics around people who are facing jail sentences around drug crimes like possession or distribution. People of color are overrepresented in those populations. Mm -hmm. Definitely there's a, there's a link to be made. I think that there's more that we would want to point people towards in terms of like doing their own research and, and seeing what's out there. But there's a lot of links to be made between racism and the war on drugs. Yeah, it's really hard to talk about the war on drugs without talking about racism and uh, about how it affects populations that were already marginalized. You know, one of the things that didn't come up in my research that I would have loved to have made some connections to is the indigenous experience in North America and Canada mm -hmm. and the war on drugs here. And also making some connections between alcohol and the common sort of like portrayal that we have around indigenous people being alcoholics and, and addicted to alcohol and drugs and making some connections there at how that's actually been something that's been very government sanctioned and is outwardly like results in greater harm towards indigenous communities and overrepresentation in our prison system as well. Mm -hmm. What I spent most of my time focusing on, Vincent, was like looking at Canadian policy, like drug policy, and looking at where we are right now, because this is a really interesting moment in time in the war on drugs, because there's finally a challenge to that sort of mentality happening. Mm -hmm. This is a very interesting moment to watch as cities like Vancouver and Toronto are applying to the federal government to have drugs decriminalized within their city's sort of boundaries. We were having a charter challenge being brought on by a group of drug users using the Charter of Rights and Freedoms to the Supreme Court right now, saying that we need to strike down our drug laws because they are causing harm to people who use drugs. So it's a really interesting time to watch as we're sort of seeing that sort of challenge to this sort of the war on drugs as the, the law of the land. Mm -hmm. So let's finish off with a couple of the historical sort of facts, and then we'll get into like some questions. Sound good? Yeah. All right. So Basically, in Canada, like you've got this Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, which has been in place for a number of years. We've gone through a couple of federal government changes. So back in the early 2000s, harm reduction was really starting to take root as sort of the, the preferred strategy. And then we went through Stephen Harper. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mr. Harper, for nothing. We, we went through those years with Stephen Harper where tough on crime was the agenda and the conservatives were approaching things as like mandatory minimums. We were back to that sort of like tough on crime, war on drugs mentality. That's interesting how like it's linked to power. Like it's 
I guess like being tough on crime is a way to win elections in Canada as well. And it's the way that conservatives win elections. And sometimes I wonder if that's about real values that they have, or it's just about power and control. I would never want to second guess their motives at all, but I would say it's probably about power. <laughs> Let's say it's about both. Let's say it's about both. We'll give the conservatives <laughs> the benefit of the doubt. But thinking about those years, and I can I can bring it home with a story that I think I alluded to in an earlier podcast, which is the Toronto Crystal Meth Task Force, which was created in 2005. They received funding from the federal government to pursue a harm reduction strategy and educate gay men in our, our community here in Toronto about crystal meth. And it was a harm reduction-based program. Their federal funding got cut the next year, and all the good work that they had done was stopped dead in its tracks because there was a change in government and a change in tactics. And that really put a chill on any sort of talk about crystal meth and PMP in Toronto for a while. Like There was still the great work that they had done, but there was a real chill on organizations being able to, able to do anything about it because funding was cut. They couldn't do things that the government wouldn't give them permission to do around drugs. And that's how it really plays out. Imagine these are the same changes that we've seen uh, on the provincial level with our sex education curriculum. Mm -hmm. There's something about fear of people being informed and making informed decisions that wins elections, apparently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if like the sex curriculum in school has a hard time, like imagine like gay men using drugs, how <laughs> like how many levels of stigma that we need to go through to make ourselves heard from the government if the general like sex ed, which has so much research and facts to back that like proper sex educational curriculum reduce harms, saves lives, etc. etc. <laughs> like poor gay man using drugs. Yeah, yeah. You think an uphill battle. I'm laughing, but it's not funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's an uphill battle, right? Like yeah. and that's the thing. It's like if they don't want to protect their own children with say for sex messaging, then they're definitely not going to care about us. And it's true. This is where we end up today, like why you and I are both in the work that we do is because of these things, right? Like because there's not a lot out there. You're right. It's not funny. And in fact it actually breaks my heart to think that like we've got such a slog against us. But that's changing. I have, I have great faith that it's changing because one thing I'll say about the crisis with the poison drug supply that we've been facing is you can ignore a problem for a certain amount of time, but eventually when enough bodies start piling up and enough bodies of people that we care about start piling up, people start to pay attention. Mm -hmm. And I think people have grown, or at least society has grown uncomfortable with the fact that we have people dying at exponential rates. Like the overdose rate in Toronto increased 80% in one year. Like that's huge. Yeah. Those are people that we, we know and people we care about. And even if you're not somebody who's a drug user, you probably know somebody who's been impacted by the overdose crisis or the poison drug supply crisis. If it were anything else, there would be a change so much quicker. If the death from driving would increase 81% in one year, mm -hmm. the world would... Cars would be banned. Yeah, something <laughs> would happen like really quickly. But because it's happening on the margins... Then, uh, yeah. or if it were happening with a wealthy middle class like white men, you know, if like all of a sudden, you know, all of the Conservative Party of Canada and all of the wealthy heads of business started dropping like flies, people would take notice. There would be something that would be done. But when it's people who are impoverished or people who are racialized or they're gay people or they're any other sort of marginalized group, you can ignore it. We saw that in the AIDS crisis in the 80s. How long did it take to get action on the HIV AIDS crisis? And this is the same sort of crisis. It's impacting people that society does not have time for that have been othered, right? And and that's a problem. But we're finally paying attention. And I have to say, there are so many courageous voices 
coming from that sector and harm reduction and people who use drugs who are speaking up for themselves, who are challenging the status quo. There's going to be some substantial changes. As much as I love decriminalization to be on the agenda for the government, and it should be on the agenda for the government, we're not seeing a ton of like brave and courageous motion from the feds because right now they're in a minority government and it's difficult to pass through like sweeping this is a sweeping change to decriminalize drugs in Canada. Yeah. So they're going with the safer route, the more politically expedient route, but it's small progress. So let's talk about that, like decriminalization versus illegalization. Because I don't know that decriminalization would be enough. I, I guess it would reduce some arm, mm-hmm. but I don't know that it's enough. I would agree with you, Vincent, on that. And decriminalization for our, our listeners is just about making it not illegal to possess drugs. Mm-hmm. Right now, the decriminalization that we're looking at is just for possession. It's not for distribution or sale. Those things are still going to be considered criminal acts. But people would not be arrested for having drugs on them, which the argument is, is that currently in the current environment that we're in, people are often, because they're afraid of arrest or they're afraid of like you know being caught with drugs on them, are using in isolated spaces like in very dangerous ways that make it more likely that they'll overdose. Or if they do take poison drugs, that they'll overdose. Mm -hmm. That being is part of the problem, but it doesn't do anything to stop the poison drug supply at all. Yeah. Right? You're still going to have poison drugs coming in and there's going to be the illegal market around them, which makes it so difficult. And one of the cool things that was happening out in Vancouver, uh, there was an organization, I can't remember the name, but an organization of drug users in Vancouver who put on a safe supply day where they sold safe heroin, they sold safe crystal meth, they sold safe cocaine. It was like actual publicized and it was supported, I think, by in some way, shape or form by the government or the city municipal government. And it was to demonstrate that when you can sell people clean, regulated, tested drugs, that a lot of the dangers around that disappear, right? You don't have to worry about overdose because there's no fentanyl in the, in the, the heroin you're using or the cocaine that you're snorting. And that's another part of legalization. If you legalize things, if you make it regulated and tested and like there has to be certain standards, then we face the same thing we have with alcohol. You don't go to the LCBO and worry whether you're going to get a bad batch of wine. Yeah. Gonna... <laughs> I mean, I'm not great at choosing <laughs> wine, so. <laughs> yeah, there's a different kind of harm there. Like, oh, she brought a rosé I and mean, she should have brought a red. Um, <laughs> like, that's a different kind of harm. But like here we're talking about is the cocaine I'm snorting going to have fentanyl in it? Is it going to kill me because I don't have the tolerance? Like that's a scary risk. Mm-hmm. But if we maybe legalize things and made there a legal framework for that, then we might be able to like stop people from dying. You know, that seems to be a really good approach, I think, is like to stop people from dying. Yeah. But like we have the solutions and the solutions first, they would work because in other countries in the world, these solutions have worked. They would be so much cheaper than how much money we pay right now for a combined war on drugs, law enforcement, and all of the harm and hospitalizations that could be avoided because somebody mm. who has an overdose and survive, I mean, I don't want to call them a burden, but it's still like a lot of money mm-hmm. that gets involved into that. That could be very easily avoided. We talked about this in our episode on harm reduction versus abstinence, but there are solutions that are cheaper and that would actually work that we know about and have been tested in other countries. And it's so frustrating that right now we're just looking at like the tip of the tip of the iceberg, which would be like decriminalization of having drugs on yourself. And even that decriminalization is a little bit taji because the involvement of law enforcement and making policy decisions around that is very heavy. The police still have a big sway in this. And, and that's another thing to, to point out is that the cops get a lot of money 
to police the drug war and to enforce drug policy. And I think that's money that could be better diverted back to communities and to programming that supports actual people in those communities dealing with the actual root causes. Mm -hmm. You know, drug use is not just this thing that just happens, right? There's reasons for it. There's social determinants that go into people's use of drugs, poverty, oppression, experiences of racism, homophobia, transphobia, like all of the social ills that sort of like contribute to this. And we don't tackle those. We just put a Band-Aid on it. And that Band-Aid, unfortunately, is the police and the law. And those are pretty brutal Band-Aids, if you ask my opinion on that. And I would say if we go outside right now and we ask 100 people who use drugs if they would like a supply to assure them that their drugs are clean, I'm pretty sure all 100 of those people would answer yes. I'm pretty positive of that, too. So a lot of guys are terrified of going in a public space and identifying themselves as people who use drugs by going and getting clean supplies because they're afraid of arrest. It's this weird thing that there's this real fear. Criminalization has worked to put a chill on people who are in our community from accessing things like safer using supplies. I've been at a number of, of parties and I've been in a number of spaces where somebody is having a medical crisis, having a, an episode of like paranoia or panic and they think they may be having a heart attack. They might be physically in distress from drug use like crystal meth or GHB, where they might have G'd out and they're in danger. Mm-hmm. And people are so hesitant to call 911 because of the fear. They, they know that when they call 911, the police will show up with the ambulance. If you say there's drugs involved, the police show up with the ambulance. It's just the way that our emergency responses work. People are terrified to do the right thing to protect somebody's life and health because they're afraid of criminal consequences. Do you think there's the double level of like, not only are we using drugs, but we're using drugs to have gay sex? Oh, absolutely. I think there's a a real stigma and a shame. People don't want, who wants the cops to come over to their gay sex party? I mean, (laughs) like, let me think about that. I know there's a lot of people who think that's really hot, but like. I know, I feel like I've seen porn like that. Yeah, Uh, but in reality, (laughs) if you know that you're using illegal drugs and you know that you're having gay sex and the cops don't have a great track record in our community, despite the fact that some of our community love the police so much, but there's a real bad history, right? Cops have been terrible to queer people. And like going back to the 1980s, they raided the bathhouses. So I wouldn't want them in my home when I've got a couple of naked guys here and trust them to be like on their best behavior. Now, that being said, I've had personal experience having to call 911 on behalf of a person who was at my home who was having a bit of a, a moment. And I know the law enough to know that the Good Samaritan law, which applies to people who use drugs, if there is a concern about overdose, and I call 911, the cops cannot come into my home and, and charge me with drug charges in most circumstances. Mm-hmm. Like I could have drugs out on the table and it's not within the realm of their powers to arrest me for that. Is that really, because I know that this law exists in theory, but... I can't speak to any sort of statistical data on it. I've seen it play out a couple of times where it's been fine. It's played out in my bedroom once, fine. Okay. But that that's just anecdotal evidence. But um, that law is there to protect us. And I think once you know that the law is there... That at least empowers you as a human being, as a, as, a, um, as a citizen, to understand when the police are overstepping their rights. You don't have to answer police questions around things. There's a lot more we could talk about in that regard, but people do need to know their legal rights around this. And it's important that people get familiar with the Good Samaritan Act, because you do not want to put somebody in harm's way because of that fear of criminalization. Because I, I don't know about you, I could not live with myself if somebody came to actual physical harm because I was too scared to call. Mm-hmm. The fact that people are so scared of losing their job because they might be found out to be using crystal meth or partying and playing is so disproportionately large. And people are making decisions like that to protect their livelihood or protect their, their personal life. It's really fraught. And I think it's one of the ways that we don't think of criminalization necessarily having an impact, but it does. Yeah. When there's that stigma that comes from being associated with a criminal act, people make a lot of questionable choices, I guess. 
which makes sense. Like laws and criminality, like it's scary. We've been trained to fear it above anything else. So really like I can imagine like partying somewhere and something like that happened. You're, you're probably kind of like stuck between like a rock and a hard place. But now there is the good Samaritan law that seems to be making things marginally better. I would encourage folks to look that up. It's easily accessible on the Government of Canada website, what the law um, says about it. It's very simple. It's like friendly language. It's not like written in legalese. It's quite easy to understand. But look it up. Get familiar with it. If you're a party host, I say this is like what you need to know. Know what you need to do to protect the people that are partying in your space and know how you're protected. And know your rights, for sure. Because there's a lot we can do. We can lament how sad it is or we can empower ourselves to learn more. And I think that's the message I want for our listeners is to like learn as much as you can about the law and how it applies to you. I've seen so much damage in the PMP scene from people who are scared of accessing any services or help because of the stigma and the shame. And criminalization is a big part of that stigma. Plus the double-edged sword of like it also being drug use that happens around gay sex and there's that extra piece. But like criminalization to me is the reason that people feel scared to ask for help, to seek support, to learn how to use drugs safer. And I think that really is taxing on people. A lot of people compartmentalize. There's a lot of people who don't talk about their, their drug use. And that's hard for them because if it starts to turn into a problem, it's a burden that they're carrying on their own. And like depression and anxiety, I can see being very easily linked to that. I know in my own life, I still struggle with the anxiety because I don't. not everybody in my world knows about my drug use. And it's a burden to carry. And a lot of that has just to do with plain old stigma and fear. And let's remember that for gay men, like gay sex was criminal, like it went 40, 50 years ago. Yeah, like, I mean, and the bathhouse raids were only in the 1980s. Like, we don't have to go too far back in the public record to see instances where the criminal law has been used to, like, not even prosecute gay men who use drugs, but just to prosecute gay men for being. Mm -hmm. I think that's a mighty big waste. I don't want, I don't want my tax dollars going to that. But um, we still face that stigma. Gay sex is still looked at as something that's dirty and wrong and abnormal. Right. I, I think also when we talk about the impact on mental health, of criminalization, we still, because we're both white men, like have those lenses, but I cannot even start to imagine how we'd feel for black gay men who uses drugs and how their reality and their living through this would be so different. And obviously we cannot generalize because not all black gay men and all brown gay men have the same personality, but that like adds layers that, again, I'm not the right person to talk about this but i mean we don't have to look too far to bruce MacArthur to think about when did we start getting attention to bruce MacArthur? was when a white popular gay man in the community was missing but men of color have been disappearing for years before that and bruce MacArthur used ghb to, to apply a lot of his victims and he exploited people's use of chems to like to to do that right and he was also white so we can have some really sort of like more extreme examples but that's kind of like the same thing it's it's like there's different consequences. I don't worry as much about the police because I've never had to worry about the police as a, a white man. I don't worry about them coming to my door or stopping me on the street. Mm -hmm. But that's a worry for a lot of men of color, regardless of whether they use drugs or not. So you add that into the mix. Privilege is a shield a lot of the time. So what you're saying is that even in the context of gay sex, the wrong drugs still disproportionately applied to people of color and people who are more marginalized. I'm assuming also that gay men who live closer to the poverty or who have problems with housing are probably more at risk as well. 
Because that's another, you know, class is is another system of oppression. A huge one. And I know a number of, of gay men who've lost housing recently. And it's always scary to know that they're going to be out on the street because then they're going to face more surveillance. And that's common. I mean, we also haven't even talked about drug dealers. And there's a lot of people out there who are dealing drugs for sustenance only. My mother, when I first told her I used drugs, was angry at the drug dealers who would sell me these drugs, these evil men. And like, mom, they're just trying to make a living. You know, a lot of these guys that I know who deal drugs are users themselves. They're not living the high life. They're putting their lives at great risk to do business. And there's not a lot of options for them economically. Yeah. Either they don't have education or access to employment. They've had some sort of life event that's happened that made it hard for you to get a job. So they're trying to just make ends meet. Drug dealers are another way that you know people in our community are getting caught up in the criminal justice system. And it's not pretty, right? Because arresting small-time drug dealers does nothing. They just get cycled through the criminal justice system. They're back out eventually. And the police have done nothing to actually target like the suppliers or the manufacturers of drugs, which they always say is their big aim. But we never seem to see any big busts, you know? Yeah, and like coming back to the war on drug, arresting those street-level, like low-level like drug dealers makes no like there's going to be another one tomorrow like <laughs> there will be no impact whatsoever except on the life of the person who is arrested yep and then that criminalization right the, the criminal record is going to make it harder for them to gain employment yeah they will have to continue i'm pretty sure a three-year-old could figure out like the illogical parts of our criminal justice system and be like this makes no sense <laughs> like why are we doing this but yet we continue on mm-hmm. jordan we talked about why Duran drug doesn't work. We talked about the history in Canada. We talked about its impact on our communities. We talked about decriminalization and legalization, which I think for both you and me and harm reduction would be tools to use to stop the war, like instead of the war on drugs. What are your parting thoughts? Okay, so my parting thought on the war on drugs is that we need to end it now. We need to invest in decriminalization and legalization. And people, I would just say there's evidence out there that this works. If we look to Portugal, we can see a model of how this can work in our society and actually see a decrease in the actual harms that come from drug use, an increase in people seeking treatment and recovery. It's going to have the exact opposite effect of what we fear. But we need to have that courage to step out and demand that our politicians accept no less than decriminalization at this point in time because people are dying and and whew, I'm getting an emotion. I'm having a feeling. Um, but that feeling is that folks like, you know, I've, I've watched friends die. I know friends who have lost many more people due to this kind of this ridiculous way that we have of dealing with, with people who use drugs. We're people. We're all human beings. We deserve a right to live long and healthy lives, regardless of whether we use substances or not. <laughs> I don't know what my parting thoughts are on the war on drug. All I see is... Um, our colleague, Nick Boyce, just saying like, we have the tools, we know how to do it. Why is that not happening? And like, all I feel right now is that frustration. And I know it's not a healthy place to be and to live, but right now I just can't escape that feeling. So I'm going to end the podcast on this feeling, but also to say thank you to you again for all the time that we spent And thank you for everyone who listened to all seven of these episodes. Thank you, Vincent, for having me on the show. I hope our listeners got something out of it, but I enjoyed my time here with you. Thank you. Our conversations always got me thinking. And I always walked away learning something from you. You're a wonderful, wonderful host. And um, yeah, people, you're lucky to have him doing a podcast. That's all I have to say. That's really sweet of you to say thank you very much. 
Thank you everyone for listening for a full year of Mental Health Much. Again, celebrating my anniversary. Season two is starting next Saturday. So in only six days. Uh, so stay tuned. I'm really excited to start season two. So thank you for tuning in and celebrating with me. And as usual, you can find us on Instagram. I'm at mental health much and Jordan is at blood and gore G O R R. And thank you everyone for listening for a full year of supporting me and for my audience that's constantly growing and for talking about my show with your friends and sending me all of that positive feedback. Uh, I'm not doing it just for the validation, but the validation feels really nice. Until I see you again next Saturday, please keep safe and keep talking about mental health as much as you can. Bye.